0: Welcome to the Weekly Skeptic, episode 51. I'm Nick Dixon, here with Toby Young, who's been let out of his shed for once. Coming up, the Lionesses fail to roar, Graeme Linehan is cancelled, and Sadiq Khan goes full Sadiq Khan, plus loads more, and of course, peak woke. But Toby, you're over in uh, Norfolk, aren't you?
1: Yeah, I'm in Norfolk. Um, my, My wife and children are competing in the Hunstanton tennis tournament, so I'm here to provide some support in a purely... Spectator capacity,
0: yeah, and at the moment you're doing that by them all being out of the tournament and you being at home recording a podcast. <laughs>
1: That's right, yeah. The support is fairly <laughs> spotted. <laughs> my wife, my wife, classic my wife, Toby did, Holiday did, stuff. Did, yeah, classic Toby Holiday. Now, my wife did win her first singles match earlier today, so congratulations, oh, good.
0: yeah. She seems to be very good at tennis, and um, yeah, she seems like a tr- I can imagine she's a fearsome competitor. I only met her once, but I'm pretty sure she would be. And she'd have to be to, to put to put up with workaholic Toby Young. Uh, it's yes, kinda of funny. Yes. I feel vaguely responsible for ruining all your holidays, Toby.
1: <laughs> well, I think it's um she's used to it. I've always worked through holidays. She complained at first, but having been married to me now for more than twenty one years, she's resigned to it. I mean, the problem is that most of my gigs, <laughs> I you know, i I'm, I'm self employed, so I don't get paid holidays and the businesses can't run themselves, so I just have to carry on hey. working.
0: They ain't gonna run themselves, yeah. I know it's uh, you know, you just just fill every hour with work in case you ever have to think about your life. It's um, no, uh, well, I'm similar to you, too. I'm not quite in your level yet, Toby, but I'm, I'm I'm aspiring. I mean, I don't take any holiday. Everyone says to me, Where are you going this summer? I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, <laughs> I just don't even know what they're talking about. I'm like, because I've got to do two podcasts a week, several TV shows, and uh, I just work and I've, I've, I've managed to get one day off that I've booked. Which gives me a six-day block. Anyway, the point is, we both work all the time. We actually got interrupted there by Toby's family coming back, which is quite ironic because that's what we were talking about. But um, and Toby, did did you happen to see me on a uh, hosting Free Speech Nation uh, this this week on on Sunday?
1: Well, I I I was a, a guest on Free Speech Nation, <laughs> so I certainly I certainly saw that segment of the show. Um, but I I was um. In Norfolk at that point, um, uh, interrupting um, a dinner party, so I had to return to the dinner party. Oh, really? So I didn't, but I hear it, I hear it went very well.
0: Well, I really appreciate it. you did it in the middle of a dinner party to help me out because I just I was allowed to book the guest incredibly, and I just booked had so much autonomy compared to normal. So I just booked all my friends. I got Lois McClatchy-Miller, who's brilliant in her own right, and she'd written a great article about Snow White and the decline of the girl boss, which was relevant, and you've always got something relevant. We talked about lionesses. And then I got um, Andy Shaw, who was highly relevant because he was part of the Graham Minahan story we'll talk about later. And, uh, and then we got Al McGaddow on, which was also a breaking story through the Free Speech Union, who had been sacked from the Open University for challenging gender ideology. And she was really good and she was kind enough to come into the studio. And I hope it's helped her a little bit with her uh, crowdfunder. Yeah, no, her
1: crowdfunder is going well. Um, I mean, I think her target is 70,000, but she's over 40,000 so far. And I think being on Free Speech Nation really helped.
0: Oh, good. So, yeah, we actually did a proper show there with some interesting stories, some breaking, so almost breaking stories. And uh, everyone seemed really happy with my bit. So, thank you to everyone and everyone who watched. And uh, people were impressed, uh, the production people were impressed that I kept bringing the crowd in. But that was just an instinctive thing after 11 years of hard stand-up comedy. If I could sense a lull or we had to fill a couple more minutes and Francis and Paul had sort of said their bit, I just went, what do you guys think? And I just can naturally bring in the crowd. And that was seen as like a genius innovation, but it was just natural <laughs> for me. And um, and I, I urge people to check out my monologue on Oliver Anthony. I did a four-minute monologue. I was like, I wasn't going to do one because I was trying to book people. And then in the end, someone canceled. So I had a space for monologue. They said, yeah, do a monologue. But it was it turned out to be a, the best moment. Well, not the best moment, but for me, a great moment to be able to do a, like a four-minute thing I'd written myself straight to camera, like the new Tucker Carlson. A lot of people talk about Oliver yeah. Anthony. Here's why that's important. It was just <laughs>
1: I went full Tucker. Excellent. And did, did you crib gone. off the piece you wrote for the Daily Skeptic about him?
0: That's exactly what I did. I just TV'd it up a bit, changed it around a little bit, added some stuff, improved the ending. I just and I just went, you know, well, I just changed, made it more TV. Yeah, that's exactly what I did. So that was really good. Uh, and we talked about the Lionesses with you and we'll talk about it now. So a uh, uh, few aspects of the Lionesses I thought I'd talk about, not really the actual football. They lost 1-0. I didn't watch it, obvs. But I just thought we'd talk about the way that you, you're sort of forced to like the football and this John Sopel tweet where he said that, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically said Prince William and Rishi Sunak have to be there. This is an odd thing, isn't it? That you have to be there. Do you think uh, the Lionesses would have won if Prince William was there to support?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure it would have made... A great deal of difference. Um, and s- seemingly, if, if, if Rishi had attended, it might have been his first ever football match he'd gone to. Um, so I'm not sure his support would have made a great deal of difference. I mean, it was sort of, it was just virtue signaling stuff, wasn't it? From these kind of various liberal pangendrums saying, how dare they not show the same level of support for the women's cup final than they they, they they would for the men's cup but why isn't there more bunting outside Downing Street it was just sort of ridiculous just men trying to kind of prove their bona fides as enlightened kind of champions of gender equality
0: yeah Rishi proved his uh sporting knowledge by saying you left absolutely nothing out there <laughs> is that is that the phrase it's meant to be you left everything out there isn't it was it you, you put everything, everything out there?
1: there? Is it supposed to be you left everything I mean, out no, there? I think that is the phrase. You left everything the out there shot. on
0: the field, yeah. yeah. You, have, you left yeah. absolutely so you, nothing out there. What does that mean?
1: <laughs> maybe maybe someone told you him. I, mean, it, I guess the, 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 in a way, though, you left nothing out there. It makes more sense than you left everything out there, doesn't it? Because like, if you left everything out, you left it all out. you didn't out put much you in. You left
0: it all out on the field. Yeah, the, no, the phrase is you left it all out on the field because the stuff that you brought on... You left on, and didn't even take it with you. Whereas you left nothing out there means you packed away neatly all the stuff, making sure <laughs> you know you did retain all of it.
1: <laughs> you take it see back to my up to my it. mind to my mind the cliche itself doesn't make a great deal of sense. You left everything no. out um, when you're not supposed to leave anything on out. Um, so f- just from, f- from taking it in a kind of very literal way, you left nothing out sounds like higher praise than you left everything out. Um, so I yeah, can sympathise with whoever is smart. writing Rishi's tweets.
0: Well, it's probably Corinne being- Jean-Pierre, as we'll get to later. I mean, she's writing Biden's <laughs> tweets. But yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he came at it logically rather than with any sort of knowledge of football folklore. Although, weirdly, he is a big football fan and a big Southampton fan. So I don't know why he was so, so messed that up so badly. But yeah, it is a weird phrase. But yeah, it's meant to be you left all your sweat, blood and tears, everything, all of it, you left it out on the field and your kind of right. skeletal system... And you're just a mere kind of amoeba wandering off the pitch. But yeah, you you're left right. nothing out There is like just funny. <laughs> so um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, loads of ridiculous aspects to this. Then we had the, the bishop saying you should watch women's football instead of church. And there was a funny sentence in that where it was like, well, if, if you really don't want to know the score, you know, you can go to church while it's on. It's like, is that all the church is? is then? a sort of mechanism for not finding out the, the score of the football? <laughs> like a kind of Likely Lads episode. Um, it's, uh, it's absurd, but then the other part, and then it turned out they tried to roll that back and say, oh, she didn't really mean that. She just meant, you know, you can, there's different services so you can work around it. They kind of rolled it back and maybe she did mean that to be fair, but female bishops, you know, you're always going to be in trouble. Um, and the other one was this Wilfred Emmanuel Jones, who's a farmer, sort of self-made farmer guy who actually voted leave. I found out, but he did this bizarre thing of, uh, saying that there were too many White players and they were blonde and blue eyed, this real kind of like detailed, almost phrenology style kind of racial stuff, you know, giving their genealogies and like just kind of weird kind of race obsession we have. And they were too white. And this is what happens it becomes so politicized. Women's football is kind of inherently politicized just by its existence. It seems to be like we have to talk about the pay and we have to talk about the race. We have to talk about all these weird things and whether you can kiss a woman on the, we'll maybe get onto, but it, it's just. It's so absurd. It's just kind of opened a Pandora's box of politicization of sport. And um, he got out of this. Well, didn't know exactly got out of it, but his re- response to this was to say, "Living life to the max is full of mistakes, and the more mistakes you make, the more you're living." So that's that's one way of. Uh, <laughs> I said, do you use that, Toby, to just? I didn't when I was cancelled. I didn't, didn't try you were cancelled. I didn't.
1: I didn't try that one, but uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think you'll get into too much trouble for it. I don't suppose um, the sale of. Um, black farmers produce will suffer um lots of people responded to his remarks by saying it's not about you know the team being um exactly representative from an ethnic point of view of the population of england it's about selecting the best possible players um uh, which of course is 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 a perfectly good response but another response which uh fewer people made um but which i think is better is to point out that even on his own terms um uh He got this one wrong Um, because according to the 2021 census, England is 4.2% black and 13% of the Lionesses squad, three players on the 23 person squad are black. Um, So that's three times more than in the population at large. So far from not being representative of um, contemporary England, um, black people are disproportionately, they're overrepresented in the Lionesses squad.
0: Yeah, David Starkey made a very similar point in reference to Sadiq Khan's thing that we might get onto later. Uh, He was saying uh, there was no white people in that guide and then the person on with Starkey said, well, you know, know, there should have been a white person. He said, but then we should have a black person on the sofa here. And Starkey was like, well, no, we shouldn't. We'd have to have far more white people before we needed to have a black person statistically if we're going to do it arithmetically, as he put it. Oh, yeah, once you go down that path, exactly, you have to start reducing the number of black people. It's completely ridiculous. Obviously, it should just be the best players. Maybe we'll say it now because I've I was going to put it in Pete World, maybe we'll just say it now. This Spanish FA thing was relevant as well. Spanish FA chief admits kiss somewhat tarnished women's World Cup win. And this, uh, so did you see this? Was it the manager just kissed the forward on the lips? I'm Not sure if it was the mm-hmm. manager. Was it the manager?
1: Luis. I don't think it was thingy? the manager. Was it? Wasn't it someone from the like head the head of Spanish FIFA? I'll have to look that one up.
0: I should have checked that. I should have checked this. Um, but anyway, he kissed the the the, the woman, uh, the forward, Jenny Hermoso, on the lips. And it was very much reminiscent, if you're a football fan, of many kisses we've seen. So yeah, he's the president of the Royal Spanish Football Federation. There you go. And he, yeah. he kissed on the lips. But it was very similar to the famous kiss between Paul Scholes and Gary Neville. We're used to seeing these kisses in football. It's like, you know, you've got a bit carried away after a goal. And that's sort of a funny kiss, which is shown as being, a, you know, a bit gay. But... But it's just it's two men. It's not a big deal. This was seen as a big deal, obviously, because once you introduce women, it's going to complicate it. And also, they're saying there was a power disparity between them. He initially said it's just idiots and stupid people. It was just a kiss between two friends celebrating something. But then later, he, he had to was forced to say, you know, we saw it as completely normal. But there are people who've been hurt by this, and I have to apologize. And all this, and it's somewhat tarnished the celebration. I just feel like so Toby. It I think it's the women's fault you know it's just a sport let women play football i would have smaller goals because it's unfair that's just me but this the nature of it seems to mean that every aspect of it is relentlessly politicized what do you think
1: yeah it did seem i thought it was a bit of a storm in a teacup i mean he was obviously just you know um uh, in a celebratory mood and um if you're spanish um you know um when you're celebrating, particularly a victory of this magnitude, you want to kiss somebody. Um, but it wasn't, it, there was nothing sexual about it. It was purely celebratory. Um, uh, so, you know, it didn't really yeah. matter that there's a kind of power discrepancy between what the captain of the Spanish football team and the president of the Spanish FA. Um, so it, it does, but I suppose the argument is that. Um, You know, um, we can't make exceptions because if you said that, you know, it's not okay for um, a powerful man to kind of kiss um, a a less powerful woman um, without seeking her consent in any way, just immediately, kind of just just grabbing her head and kissing. Everyone said it was okay provided. It's um, in, it, to celebrate something. I guess that could be an exception that that complicates workplace rules. So you just basically have to have one kind of uh, rule, no exceptions. Because um, you know, I suppose otherwise yeah, you are know, sure, people sure, guilty yeah. of sexual sexual harassment. You you could you could you know go up to one of your very attractive producers at GB News and kind of just kiss her full on the lips. Say no, no, I was just celebrating the Linus's uh, near victory. Um, <laughs> We'd well, uh, have, have to bring me in for it, HR. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, we don't have to be. Well, I was going to say, like someone like Harvey Weinstein, he was probably celebrating quite a few, you know, because he was getting them roles in Hollywood. Cracks open the champagne; it's now a celebration. So I get to kiss it. Yeah, that yeah, we can't have that loophole. But Toby, if it was a man he'd kissed, what? Would be, I bet nothing would have happened. No one would have said anything. But there was, still would have been the power imbalance. And and we don't know if the guy's gay or not gay. We don't know if he wants mm. to be kissed. But do you really think there'd been any outrage if well, he just it, kissed if, a male player? I don't know
1: if it had been Kevin Spacey kissing a gay male player. I suppose it's possible that the gay male player could have then sued Kevin Spacey for sexual harassment. Might have turned into a gay Me Too case, I suppose. It's possible.
0: Yeah, it's possible. Uh, But it seems very unlikely if it was a male footballer because to do stuff like that all the time with them. Um, right, so that's pretty much the football one. So did did you actually watch it,
1: Toby? I watched the second half. um, So I was um, working on something. Um, But Went along later to where my wife and kids were watching it and watched the second half. And funnily enough, there, were, there were, someone did make.
0: I'm surprised you were working and we only able to join your family later.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, who, who would have guessed it? it? Um, but uh, uh, one of the one of the women on the sofa watching it um, at one point there was a kind of there was, there, were, there were several kind of. Causes um, when you know one of the players was down and the medical staff had to be summoned and um, and one of the women watching it on the sofa said, "Yeah, I think they've I think they've gone back to ask for a nail technician. Uh, is there a nail technician nice. on the medical team?" And that was quite a good joke, but you know, not a joke. I could have made obviously.
0: No, you'd have been immediately. Sadiq Khan would have entered and said, "Mate," and you'd have gone straight Mate. to jail. Yep. Um, and the other big football story this week, or football adjacent is the Mason Greenwood story. It's not really the kind of thing we might normally cover, but I think it is interesting. Obviously, I'm a United fan, but that's not particularly important. Mason Greenwood, he was initially accused of rape, but then all the charges were dropped. And then it was this question of, are United going to keep him or not? And we had like Rachel Riley say she wouldn't support Man United if he carried on playing, which is not really how football support works. You can't really do that, but okay. And lots of people were saying similar things. And in the end, United decided they would get rid of him or by mutual agreement or whatever. And he put out this statement saying, because people have heard a recording and so they think that he did it. And he said, I did not do the things I was accused of. He said, I'm going to focus on being a father and a good partner and a a better footballer and a better person. But he's going to go and do it elsewhere. And of course, loads of people are saying, this is great. And he had to go. But the problem is, Toby, I hate to take yet another controversial stance, but you have to really follow the rule of law, don't you? If all charges are dropped... Someone, you know, United can decide whether to keep him. Fair enough, but you, and yes, I suppose he is going to carry on playing? So that, that's going to happen. But you, ha- you, people are sort of wanting, you know, to end his career over this. But if all charges are dropped, you can't just have mob rule. You have to go with with the law, don't you? Because then, how can you live by any other standard? How can society work and if we're just going to yeah. say we're, if we're just canceling people based on our suspicions?
1: Well, I suppose um, one argument could be that um, in order to convict him of a criminal offence. A jury has to find him guilty uh, beyond reasonable doubt. Um, So that's quite a high standard. And it may be that the reason he wasn't prosecuted is because they didn't think there was sufficient evidence to meet that standard. There was always going to be room for reasonable doubt. But I guess Man United could argue that on the preponderance of evidence, um, he was more likely to be guilty than innocence, so because there was a greater fifty, there was a greater than fifty percent chance that he's guilty. That's why they've got rid of him. I suppose they could argue that. Mm, yeah,
0: well, I think they've got rid of him purely because it's a, just a difficult PR situation; they can't win. Yeah, that that's what Isn't made that it seem reason?
1: like a miscarriage of justice. Yes, that um, when they released their statement um, a few days. Before releasing the final statement, they released a kind of preliminary statement in which the implication was um, they were going to decide to keep him. Uh, And they were kind of, you know, softening up um, uh, uh, the, the media and the public and supporters to kind of for that for that news to be delivered. Um, But because they implied they were going to keep him in this preliminary statement, that gave an opportunity for all these activists to kind of uh, protest and people like Rachel Riley to say, if you keep him, I'm not I'm going to I'm not going to support Man United anymore. And there were these kind of female supporters who protested outside a game. And they clearly decided, uh, well, we we just can't take the PR hit. So regardless of whether we think he's guilty or innocent, we're just going to toss him overboard. And that, that felt a bit unjust.
0: Yeah, I think she may have said that statement before that the statement you're referring to came out, but I'm not. I'm not certain. But it certainly, it gave loads of people a chance to say, "Hang on, what's this? This is awful." I didn't. When I read that statement they released, I didn't think they were necessarily saying they were going to keep him. But yeah, they were maybe testing the waters either way. And certainly, yeah, I do. It does look as if they've put that out. It's gone very badly, and they decided to get rid of him. And so therefore, it just seems like activism. But yeah, obviously, if if you've heard some of the recordings, it is it is pretty bad. It's not like I'm saying Mason Greenwood seems to be a great guy or anything, but. Yeah, I just think you've got to have the rule of law. Although our justice system is also corrupt, that's a whole other argument. Um, y- you had an interesting—well, not you really, Toby, but you were sort of had a strange connection to a big case uh, this week from Peter Willby. Do you want to talk about that? Because you sort of know yeah, much more about it than me.
1: Mention that briefly. Um, so um, when I was cancelled in uh, 2018 um, and had to step down from five positions, um, Peter Willby. Wrote something about it in a diary piece for the New Statesman. So he's he was a, he, he's the ex-editor of the New Statesman and the ex-editor of the Independent on Sunday. At one stage, he was a columnist for the Guardian, um, and uh, you know a kind of liberal media pangendrum, You know, um, a, a sort of a member of the great and the good, a kind of almost a you know liberal holy man um, and um, he, he, he when I saw his his name and mine at the top of this diary um, in the staggers I thought ah oh, you know um, I might get a fair hearing here because um, he'd actually written quite a nice piece about me in the Guardian when I first when I was one of the people to set up one of the first free schools um, back in 2011. Um, and he was a friend of my father's. Um, and he'd also, I think, published some pieces of mine in The Independent on Sunday when he was the editor. So I thought, and I, you know, I knew him a little bit, always quite liked him, always thought he was a pretty fair-minded guy. Um, and... Um, and actually, the piece was was really horrible. Um, it said that um, I'd made a career out of, quote, denigrating women, homosexuals, disabled people, ethnic minorities, and anybody on benefits, and that I would disgraced the memory of my dead father. And he even said at one stage, this is about me, he was more or less addicted to both alcohol and pornography. So it was a pretty damning piece. Uh, he was really just kind of you know, um, joining the pile on, um, uh, which, which was very disappointing. And it was particularly disappointing because he he had known my father and it was almost like he was delivering a judgment by proxy from beyond the grave. You know, I disgraced the memory of my father. Um, so I found it quite upsetting at the time. I mean, when you're going through something like this, you're constantly kind of scouring the press about you, looking for people who are going to say something to defend you, people are going to stick up for you. And when I saw his name and my name at the top of this column, I thought, finally, you know, um, uh, someone very well respected in the media is going to actually um, uh, be in my corner. So it was a blow when he turned out to be one of the most vicious things anyone wrote about me in that period. Um, uh, so um, uh, I was pretty taken aback, pretty shocked. Um, to read in uh, The Times on Saturday, the following headline, Peter Wilby, former Independent on Sunday editor, sentenced over child sex images. And the article said that 167 indecent images of children had been found on his computer, 22 of which were, quote, the most serious kind, unquote. And he pleaded guilty, sentenced to 10 months in prison, suspended for two years, got to carry out 40 hours of rehabilitation 10 year sexual harm prevention order and has been placed on the sex offenders register for 5 years i guess my um initial reaction was one of sort of bewilderment you know how could this eminent liberal journalist who regularly denounced right wing sinners from his you know pulpit in places like the guardian um have been harboring such a Shameful secret, you know, it just seemed extraordinary that he could have thundered away about me with such moral righteousness On the same keyboard he'd been using to access child pornography perhaps just you know minutes earlier um, and um, I think we're, we're sort of a, we're kind of used to you know um, Evangelical pastors like Jimmy Swaggart uh, turning out to have feet of clay and um, you know the the kind of um uh the the, the 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 Christian minister thundering away against kind of sodomy um uh in the pulpit only to be discovered with a rent boy a week later that he's become a kind of stock character in the pantomime of public life um but but for some reason it's more shocking and more surprising when it's a kind of liberal secular holy man like Peter willby uh, maybe it shouldn't be I mean I don't think it's it's, it's, it's you know, any more rare than conservatives being discovered to be hypocrites. But I think because we just naturally take the left's kind of um, presentation of themselves as being holier than thou and high minded and kind of having these kind of much more kind of developed moral compasses than, than people on the right, it's somehow more of a shock when they turn out to be harboring these kind of terrible secrets and guilty of these terrible things. Um, so I found it I found it pretty shocking but I suppose um, at the same time um, couldn't 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 help but feel a, a smidgen of Schadenfreude that, that this man who who denounced me with such kind of high high-minded moral righteousness including you know uh, accusing me of being addicted to pornography when clearly he was the one addicted to porn um, I couldn't help feeling a, a smidgen of satisfaction. I guess my my kind of theory about about why it is that people like Kim get can sort of work themselves up into such a lava about the sins of people on the other side politically. it's partly projection, you know um, and in my case it must have been projection when he was talking about me having disgraced my father's memory. Maybe what he was really thinking in the back of his mind, semi-consciously, was that if it should ever come out that I've got all these appalling images on my computer, um, uh, then 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 that would disgrace the memory of my father. Um, so maybe, maybe there was just an element of projection in there. I don't know. But it was sort of bewildering and upsetting uh, at the time anyway, and, and also just to learn about his horrible, horrible crime.
0: Absolutely shocking, but fascinating insight. And uh, you know the fact that he got your alcohol addiction right, that was just a lucky guess. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the, the comments about your father were absolutely disgusting, and I'm sure must have been very upsetting. And the um, the Schadenfreude, I think I said to you, if ever Schadenfreude was to get a pass, it would be for this, I think, when someone's been so vicious publicly to you and then turn out to be such a disgusting pedo themselves. And by the way, Douglas Murray, you were far more restrained than Douglas Murray. You, I've not seen you say anything about it on Twitter or anything. But he said a few years ago, Peter Wilby, former editor of the New Statesman, criticized me and The Spectator while defending The Statesman and their liar-in-chief, George Eaton. Turns out Wilby is a nonce. So he just went in full nonce attack. And um, attacking a nonce, not a nonce, attacking someone. So uh, yeah, a very grim case. But I do, one thing I'd say, Toby, is it's almost a given to me now that these these loud virtue signals will be in some way despicable. We have the sort of Schofield types where are used to, you know, they, things always come out about them. It's almost a cliche now that a male feminist will be a, a sexual assaulter and it's just, you know, just a, trying to get in there and do something sleazy. Don't you think that, although I understand you what you're saying, it would became the kind of cliche of the TV evangelist or something, but now isn't it just a cliche, mm. or the Catholic Church, obviously, but isn't it now the cliche of the, of the lefty sleazeball, you know, moralizing on the telly? I, yeah,
1: well, I, I, think, I think, of course, you're right. I don't think it's... Um, I don't think it happens any less often that um, left-wing moralizers um, are revealed to be awful hypocrites any more often than it does right-wing moralizers. Um, But for some reason, it's still... I mean, I was really trying to just analyze my own reaction. Why did I find it more shocking than I would have if it had been a conservative ex-newspaper editor? Um, And and I think it, it must be because it's not just, I think, that they they present themselves as being better. They're the goodies, we're the baddies. So it's somehow more shocking when the goodies turn out to have feet of clay and, and their behavior is so at odds with the way they present themselves to the world. Um, I think it's also that unlike you know um, Christian ministers, they come with a kind of impremature. You know, the metropolitan elite has given them the authority To kind of make these moral pronouncements, to be the custodians of public decency, they have a kind of quasi-official status. They have more authority than actual, you know, religious people now. Um, uh, So I think it's that that makes it quite shocking. It's like you know, it's almost as it it, it, it's shocking in the way that um, if, if if a priest or a bishop in the 19th century had turned out to be on the take or kind of uh, visiting prostitutes. Um, It's because of their official status as our moral guardians, I think, that makes it just particularly shocking.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't say shocking, but particularly disgusting. But yeah, absolutely shocking case. And this is why I try not to be a moralist. Not because I've done anything disgusting like Peter Wilby. Obviously, I haven't. But because we're all sinners, I try not to be so moralistic. And this is why I don't like some of the attacks on... I don't I don't want to say Andrew Tate cuz I get attacked for even mentioning him now in our reviews but you know I try not to be a moralist about anything really uh, of course you've got to draw a line about things but this you know you've got to draw a line but you've also you don't want to be just going around morally judging everyone all the time so yeah very interesting case very grim case and um I don't know it's well you've sort of won haven't you Toby in a grim way eventually I suppose but I don't know if you, I don't know if it feels good but uh, well I I've,
1: I've I've um I've just written about it in The Spectator and I open with the um, proverb that um, if you if you sit on the riverbank for long enough, the body of your enemy will float past. And it did feel a bit like that when I read the story in The right. Times last Saturday.
0: That's brilliant. Yeah, it's all about endurance. I've noticed that with a lot of things in life. Um, you just stay in a job or whatever it is and people just burn out. And uh, this is a particularly grim example. Um, another grim story then is this... Uh, Obviously, this Lucy Letby case is absolutely horrific. We're not really going to just talk about the case in itself. It's not really what we do on this podcast. But the sort of culture war side of it is interesting. Dr. Scholar, this appalling race grifter, as, as we, we all know, uh, said that um, Lucy Letby exemplifies how the ideology of whiteness keeps Britain in a chokehold. They believed her tears and denials, even though evidence said otherwise, for no other reason than she's white. A black or brown nurse would have been reported to the police immediately and sacked for suspicion. Of course, an absurd claim that unprovable, undisprovable, unfalsifiable just hangs there as a kind of nonsense accusation. And uh, the way I put it was quite moderately. I said, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like the ideology of whiteness, which was a joke because, you know, Shola, everything looks like a nail to her because she has the hammer of race obsession. Did you see this, Toby?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's always kind of um, it always feels very cheap and tawdry when political activists jump on tragedies to try and score points. It's often often comes up when there's a kind of mass shooting, and um, opponents of um, you know um, America's gun laws. Pile in, and demand a ban on assault rifles and the rest of it. Um, it always feels, you know, too soon. Um, uh, but in this case, I mean, it's it's even if even if Shola had waited a month to make that point, it, it still wouldn't have landed, would it? I mean, it's just obviously complete nonsense. And if one is going to kind of turn this into a kind of culture war. Um, uh exchange of fire um it seems to me that um this is an indictment of the kind of culture of victimhood within the nhs and within so many modern workplaces that if someone claims to be a victim um uh, and and they're, they're someone who's raised a complaint about them um is um above them in the kind of hierarchical pecking order, uh, it's quite easy to uh, wriggle out um, whether you're white or black um, and um, force the accuser to make a kind of uh, humiliating, groveling apology. It's it's this anti-bullying, anti-victimization culture. It's also the fact that the NHS is kind of... uh, uh, completely overrun with kind of um, middle managers um, and obviously very poorly run because it's so bureaucratic. There's a lack of any accountability. It just seems to be an indictment, both of, you know, modern workplace culture and the culture within the NHS in particular.
0: Yeah, horrific. And I was making the point on the telly that actually a majority of this country believe in the death penalty for crimes like this. They believe in the death penalty, they favor the death penalty, that is, for terrorist murders serial murders and child murders and let me meet two of these and uh, we um, everyone's certain that it's her so i say this is a sort of would be a textbook case for the death penalty i mean i've seen even Lawrence fox tweeted against that he was against the death penalty i don't know if he thinks of that in a christian sense but actually I i was reading so i've been reading through genesis on my other podcast the current thing we did a special edition on it and i was reading noah actually in noah there's an argument for the death penalty regarding the sacredness of life because life's so sacred the punishment taking it should be so extreme that that's a sort of paradoxical argument features in noah after the flood uh i don't know maybe some biblical scholars will say that's not what it's about because i'm a layman on the bible but um what do you think toby death penalty
1: well i think the for me the the strongest argument against the death penalty usually wins out which is that um you can never be 100 percent sure that the person in question is guilty, even if they've confessed to the crime. Um, There is always going to be room for some doubt, maybe not reasonable doubt, but a smidgen of doubt. And if there is a risk, however small, that um, you execute an innocent person, then for me, that's a good argument against the death penalty.
0: Yeah, and Peter Hitchens made a convincing counter-argument. He's saying there's always going to be mistakes. We're always going to kill people in general, so people say, I don't believe in state murder. And then you go, do you believe in the military? Yes. Okay. So you do believe in state murder. So that's not true. So it is context dependent. And then you go, well, we can't be sure. And he says, well, look, if people, if you let people out early and they reoffend and kill people, that happens a lot. So you lose innocent life there. So his point was, let's be realistic. You're always going to lose innocent life and the state is going to be involved in it. So it's just a question of where that is. Is it the is it the reoffenders getting out of jail and killing someone? Is it in wars? Is it etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So his case was well, you they, know you can't completely rule that out, but you can minimise it with modern technology. Sometimes we can pretty much a hundred percent know now, which I've said before. Mm-hmm. I think.
1: Yeah, I mean, if, if you could say with a hundred percent certainty that the person was guilty, I mean, if you if if you caught them on camera um, murdering someone, um, murdering a child, um, and um, and they also confessed to the crime, then yeah, I think. I wouldn't have any objection um it, it's the it's 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 the it's the risk however small that you might end up executing an innocent person and to Christopher Hitchens sorry Peter Hitchens's argument um I guess the solution there's another solution which is you just keep them in jail for life life means life um you don't let them out you know however well behaved they are so there's no risk they can kill again um yeah mm-hmm. I all it, pay I, I, guess, I guess i uh, guess I also I'm not I'm not I'm not keen I'm not at all keen on um, the legalization of euthanasia um, and one risk I think of um, bringing about the death penalty is that it would make the argument against legalized euthanasia just slightly harder to make you know we, we'd say well we sanction executions so why shouldn't we allow people to take their own lives if they want to um, why shouldn't the state hmm. give that its blessing? Um, whereas for me, That's the sanctity of life means I, you don't, you don't, you don't allow the state to execute people and you don't allow people to voluntarily take their own lives either.
0: Interesting. I, I don't totally see the link, but I, it's an interesting point. I'm definitely against, uh, this uh, euthanasia stuff, you, you know, for, for sure that all these companies will start saying, I think it's already happening in Canada. they start like giving out leaflets, like, you know, Are you sure you don't just want to die? Like, you know, it'd be quicker, quicker and more efficient if you've got whatever illness or whatever it is. I'm sure you'd be getting pamphleted. I mean, they already do it with abortion. Maybe I've said this before. They already pamphlet you to you know, get your abortion, even if you came in not for that reason. And I'm sure they pamphlet you into a into a euthanasia. That's my theory on that anyway. Um, all right, fairly grim topics today on the podcast. What about this one? Bit less grim, more sort of in the annoying and pathetic category. This is Sadiq Khan was forced to distance himself from a claim on his website that a picture of a young white family does not represent real Londoners. This was in some sort of, internal guidance of how you should picture the mayor and it was like yes this is a good picture of him which was sort of him with no white people and then this is a bad picture because it doesn't represent real london which was like a happy white family sort of strolling down the river i suppose that doesn't really represent london anymore no one was being stabbed there was no litter there was no chaos and filth and so yeah i suppose they had a point what did you make of it, being
1: You weren't be, be, being chased by some kind of uh, traffic enforcement official with an on-the-spot fine. So, yeah, quite unrealistic. Um,
0: yeah, no one was openly doing nitrous oxide.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, I guess the same um, uh, demographic argument could be made here as was made against um, Wilfred, the black farmer, which is um, uh, white Britons are, in fact, London's largest ethnic group so 37% of Londoners are white Britons. And if you add non-British white people to the white Britons, then we actually make up an overall, white people make up an overall majority of London's residents. It's 54%. So why a picture of white people should be unrepresentative in the eyes of Sadiq Khan's branding team. But I suppose, you know, it's not about whether it's representative or not. It's about the image that Sadiq Khan wants to project. And you know, he 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 wants to he 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 wants to present himself as the kind of diverse choice for uh, the London mayor um, when he runs again. And as we know, diverse is just code for non-white. But that's worked for him, you know, electorally up to now. So there's no reason for him to suppose it won't continue to work. Which is why, you know, you're never going to see any white people in any of the in any of Khan's official kind of electoral propaganda, supposedly representing contemporary London or his vision of contemporary London.
0: Yes. And some people pointed out it's happening at the same time that he's promoting a sort of black only event. I can't remember what it is now, but it's one of the many celebrations of of black something or other. And, you know, these kind of classic things that everyone, oh yeah, black pride, apparently. So yeah, you know, you go straight from black pride to white to evil, black culture event in Trafalgar Square or something. So, yeah, it's the usual stuff. But one thing that's changed is that people are finally starting to wake up to this. I don't I don't think anyone's going to change anything soon because we're so used to hating white people now as if it's normal. But the the rhetoric around it is starting to change to where there's a bit of a fight back. I mean, David Starkey on GB News said anti-racism is racist. He talked about white privilege being a concept of hereditary guilt. And he said that's what Hitler did to the Jews. Typical bold language from Starkey. He said this is apartheid in reverse. So... To say what, what that it, you know course,
1: that's oh, G B oh, oh, well, we, we have apartheid in reverse in the, contemporary London, thanks to Sadiq Khan. Is that what he was yeah. saying? Yeah, well, and, and these kind of attitudes, yeah.
0: These kind of anti-white <laughs> attitudes. Classic yeah. Starkey. I mean he, he, no 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 bleeps given. But he uh, you know, that's G B and that's Starkey, it won't it won't hit the mainstream yet. But we are seeing more and more people saying, hang on, this is you know, white people are discriminated against in, in jobs and that the rhetoric around them is disgusting. We see Scholler's tweet. We see Sadiq Khan's internal guidance. And more, more and more, Toby, at least I'm seeing pushback against it. I mean, it's far too little, far too late, but it's at least some pushback against it. I still think it will take years. Because if you said now, you know, white people are oppressed or something, people would like laugh at you. But when you when you do attack and oppress a certain group, initially it's done with glee and force and kind of, you know, you, you sort of revel in it. It's it's done as a celebration. What You think about the American Indians when they were sort of, when they were being sort of attacked and replaced in America, it was done with great glee. And like, this is manifest destiny. We're winning. And initially you call them, you know, they're called savages. And then for years, for generations, you have films about them where look at we're winning in the film as well. Look at us beating these Indians in a film. And only much, much later you start to go, oh, we should not do this on Native American land. And you you start to, you know, pay lip service to the idea that maybe you shouldn't have slaughtered these people. So this is what will happen with white people. We're just being... We've been discriminated against in jobs. We're hated openly in all kinds of forums. You can say there's too many white footballers in the team. You can say the Royal Balcony is too white. Endless, endless examples, many of which we cover on this podcast. What we are seeing is a pushback against it now. But I think it will take years and years before anyone seriously says, "Okay, white people who may well be a minority by that point, certainly in London, Mm. but, but perhaps in the country, that people will finally have... There'll be some point where we have to say, oh, do we get rights as white people? And we'll be allowed some sort of... You know, reservations or something. I don't know. (laughs) That's that's one vision. I don't know. I mean, what do you think about any of that?
1: Yeah, I think I think you're right that people are beginning to get a bit fed up with it, Um, and I don't think just white people either. I mean, I think that um, one of the remarkable things about Britain compared to most other countries is how little um, racial conflict there is. Um, how little racial prejudice there is. I mean, and it, pe- people, people often jump down my throat when I say this and say, how do you know you're a white person? Of course, you don't experience prejudice. You know, talk to black people, they'll tell you that they experience it on a daily basis. How dare you say everything's rosy in our garden, it isn't, etc. But just comparatively speaking, um, Britain is one of the least racist societies in the world. You know, whatever metric you use to measure that. um, uh, We come out really, really well, somewhere at the top of the kind of international league table for anti-racism. And yet, as far as Sadiq Khan and these various woke warriors are concerned, um, we are this kind of cesspit of kind of racism. And we need to make amends, white people need to step back, um, shut up, um, etc, etc. It seems to be, you know, creating a problem or imagining there's a problem there or or or, or 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 kind of racializing our understanding of our society and ourselves in a way which is obviously unhelpful. Um, and, um, and it's going to um, uh, ultimately um, turn us into um, a society riven by more racial conflict than it is at the moment. Um, but I think, as you say, people are wising up to this. They're getting fed up with it. Um, and it's one of the kind of, I think, one of the, um, uh one of the achilles heels of the kind of woke ideology um is this anti-white racism people can clearly see that it's that it, there's a double standard there um it doesn't you know it, it offends their sense of natural justice um why why can't white people be the victims of racism just like black people how can you be an anti-racist and yet discri- openly discriminate against white people i think it's uh, it's 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 we're beginning to witness the kind of uh, implosion of this ideology. And I think that's one of the reasons.
0: Yeah. But my point was it'll take years for that to actually have take any effect. And I'm also blackpilled from my friend Callum's bleak masterpiece. He put out a a video on his channel, Britannica Politica, uh, which now has 118,000 subscribers and he called it tourism in merry old England. It's a very well-made film. He goes around England based on the census and he goes to places that are sort of you know zero percent English speaking and things like that. And he just sends it, you just send that you and all the signs are in different languages. And what you do realize is it's just a complete failure of multiculturalism that you you have people moving to an area. We all know this now. That integration hasn't worked, and they just create a new you know ghetto there of completely their culture. Whatever you think about that, what it does is just pushes other people into different areas. And you end up realizing in the film that sort of white the areas that are sort of mainly white now, or white English or white British, whatever you want to call it, a sort of little rural pocket. That's why I was seeing it in that quasi-apocalyptic way. Wait, I don't know. I just that's the way I see it going. But um, anyway, watch the film and, and see what you think.
1: D- D- not true of Norfolk. Not true of Norfolk, where I am at the moment, Nick. Um, at the Hunstanton tennis tournament, um, it's um, it's it's a sea of white faces. I'm not I'm not I'm not saying there's anything wrong. I'm not saying yeah, that. Yeah, it's that's a rural a it's coming. a rural area. Uh, the the it, white it, people it, have
0: it. retreated into these little rural enclaves. Mm. You're, that sounds like quite a wealthy one. A lot of them are, are not wealthy, and, and it just mainly consists of sort of chip shops and people passing around the same money. Or well, there's a little bit of tourism and stuff. But you're in a sort of you're, you. You sound like you've gone to quite a posh enclave there, Toby.
1: It is well. It's. I want to say. I would say that the town of Hunstanton is probably a retire a retirement community more than anything else. It's not particularly posh. The tennis tournament itself is quite posh. It's full of um, privately educated boys with mullet haircuts. Um, and I guess, but it's not 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 exclusively. Um, and actually, one of the remarkable things about the tournament, I was discussing this with um, with a, with a neighbouring family here yesterday. Um, we were having dinner together. Um, one of the remarkable things is how little kind of class tension there is. There's clearly you can clearly identify who the kind of privately educated kids and their parents are, and the state educated kids and who their parents are. Usually, they're less likely to be accompanied by their parents. Um, but it, you know, there's a clear. It, you don't need to be you know, an an anthropologist to be able to spot who the kind of affluent kids are and who the poor kids are. But there's very little tension, partly because they're kind of united by their love of tennis. It kind of gives them a kind of common cause. Uh, And it it, it feels to me as though, um, you know, one one of the problems with contemporary Britain, why it seems to be, why division and conflict seem to be on the rise is because, there aren't enough things, the equivalent of tennis in the nation at large to unite people because in the absence of a kind of common love of country, um, now that we're being encouraged to be ashamed of our history and heritage, we don't have those things to unite us, to kind of mask the divisions and conflicts and make us all get along um and uh yeah so so it seemed like um a a microcosm of of britain 50 years ago almost not 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 because it's all white but because you know tennis stands in for patriotism as something which brings people together
0: yeah that's interesting and maybe we could talk about that later in america with vivek that is a key thing you've got to bring people together and by the way there's stuff i'm talking about you can make up your own mind on i just watched that maybe callum's film is you know of course it's got his own bias in it I'm just saying the impression I got watching that film, but maybe it's too uh, maybe it's just too biased or bleak, so you can just make up your own mind. But yeah, we certainly need something to bring us together. There is an absolute lack of that. Um, all right, well, th- that's the Sadiq Khan story. Oh, before we move on, let me just quickly read an advert, actually, from our good friend Thor Holt. So Thor says he's achieved cheesy and meta in this, and he says bravo to himself. I'm not sure if that's part of the ad, but anyway... He says five stars. I can't get enough of the weekly skeptic podcast, hosted by Toby Young and Nick Dixon. Their insightful discussions and thought provoking perspectives make each episode a Bentley among Beatles. The chemistry between Toby and Nick is palpable, and their ability to steer into various topics while maintaining a balanced and critical viewpoint is what drives the show along smoothly. Not only do they bring informed depth to their conversations, but but their witty banter and engaging storytelling keep me comfortably strapped in from start to finish. Kudos to Nick and Toby for creating such an intellectually stimulating yet comfortable show vehicle. If you're looking for a podcast that challenges your thinking, offers fresh insights, and entertains all at once, The Weekly Skeptic is an absolute must. And if you're looking for a five-star coach, check his 80-plus reviews on LinkedIn, that challenges your thinking, offers fresh insights, and entertains all at once, Thor Holt is an absolute must test drive. Unlike a Tesla, you'll be fully charged at the end of every Thor coaching journey. So message him today via linkedin.com slash in slash Thor or WhatsApp him on 07906 321 593. That's linkedin.com slash in slash Thor Holt or WhatsApp 07906 321 And that is a great review slash advert from Thor Another big story, of course, is this Graham Linehan story. And last time we did the podcast, it was breaking to the point where we didn't even know the comedian yet. I just said, oh, it's a a comedian has been cancelled. And we didn't know who it was. And it turned out to be Graham Linehan. And I'm sure the listener knows by now uh, that his venue was cancelled the gig in Edinburgh Festival. And they, basically because of his views on the trans issue, and they had this hilarious statement where they put the word cancelled in block capitals, just in case there was any doubt that cancel culture exists. Owen Jones just at home going, oh, guys, why did you have to use the block capitals? on? Cap- I've been telling people it doesn't exist. And then um, and then it was, they moved to a new venue, which they're not revealing the name of because they, they say they're all right. They don't want to get them in trouble. They also cancelled. Then they put on the show outside the Scottish Parliament, not actually in a deliberate gesture. That's just because that's the only place they could get. But Andy Shaw, the co-founder, did say the gesture was quite amusing, but it wasn't deliberate. Uh, but, you know, the outcome was amusing. And they did a gig outside the Parliament. And then... There was the appalling talk TV interview, and I don't actually like attacking talk TV. I try not to too much because to it'd be an easy thing to do as a GB news person. But I know a lot of people that work there, and it's not exactly the kind of thing I like to do. But but this particular person, Rosanna Lockwood, I will say, was absolutely awful. She did this hit piece, gotcha interview with Graham, which was just pure woke activism. She she raised a conspiracy theory that Comedy Unleashed wanted to get the gig cancelled which I've always thought was absurd. Like, because Andrew Doyle is a co-founder of Comedy Unleashed, and people said, yeah, Otto English on Twitter said, oh, it's a, a gay-friendly LGBTQ venue, so they knew it would be canceled. It's like, well, why would a gay person put on a gig at a gay-friendly venue and think it would definitely be canceled? They were just trying to put on a comedy show. They didn't think it was going to be canceled. If you organize a comedy show, it's a massive hassle. You don't want it to be canceled. And they'd already sold out, so what was their motive? But she just, she just raised that kind of moronic conspiracy theory, illogical conspiracy theory. He debunked that immediately. She pushed the kind of classic trans, radical trans talking points. Then she cut to, what's her name? Grace Blakely, something, what's she called? That really annoying yeah, she, posh girl. Grace La- she, they cut to she, the posh Corbin, yeah,
1: something like Grace, that. Anyway, they cut it,
0: to her posh, posh yeah, Corbin girl and they cut to Pete, Grace Blakely. Posh, annoying Corbin girl and Peter Tatchell For these sort of moral arbiters, which is not great, given Tatchell's kind of record of certain articles he's written about certain topics uh, involving certain age groups. So yeah, very it was pathetic actually, and it was it was borderline Kathy Newman levels. And then lastly, Toby, she put up a sort of follow up tweet where she, you know, she kind of like yeah, I've been attacked, but I'm still a total legend. And she talked about hypocrisy, bullying, and I think misinformation. And uh, the irony is she was guilty of all three of those in her interview <laughs> with Graham Linehan. Shocking stuff. What did you think?
1: Yeah, I I, I did actually watch it. And um, I, I'm i not sure it was um, – I don't think it was a gotcha. I don't think it was a kind of premeditated attempt to trap Graham Linehan. Um uh, I mean, obviously, it was it was um it was it was sort of three against one, as it turned out, so I can see why people would think that. But I think it was more that, you know, she was just asking what she thought of as provocative questions. I, I remember I listened to Andy Shaw on the Scottish equivalent of the Today program, and what you're referring to as the conspiracy theory it was also put to him, and he debunked it pretty effectively too. Um but I think that was just her trying to, you know, go into. Interviewer mode, and to ask him some challenging questions, and I think the reason it went south is because he was, um, understandably, quite kind of um, uh, uh, impatient with the implication of some of her questions, and 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 he then he then kind of set out his stall. Um, and I think she then felt because he did it in quite a kind of. Um, I mean, he he was he made the point that he's not accusing. He was he's not in any way accusing all trans people of being pedos, um, but he he's raising he's 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 drawing attention to the fact that that some prominent members of the trans community, including one who worked for Stonewall, it turns out. Have kind of dubious histories and so forth, um, and uh, uh, so he was making a distinction. But he then he then kind of did talk um, at length about the kind of moral shortcomings of some of the kind of. Um, uh, uh, bigger figures in the movement. Um, uh, And so she then, I think, felt obliged to kind of push back perhaps more strongly than she'd initially intended um, because she thought, crikey, you know, I'm going to get cancelled if I don't push back here. Um, uh, So I think it it sort of organically kind of... um, just went a bit south. I don't think it was premeditated. And I, I, I think that she, I don't think she was kind of noticeably worse than kind of your standard Sky interviewers, BBC interviewers on this topic. Um, uh, and I did feel perhaps a little bit sorry for her, um, maybe misguidedly, but um, because it was kind of like, it was her big moment in the spotlight. Um, you know, she she was standing in for Piers Morgan, while well, Piers Morgan's on holiday, um, almost like a kind of understudy, Lead actress breaks her leg. She comes on, and it turns out, you know, everyone is in the audience. All these kind of top theatre critics, kind of judging your every move. Um, so I kind of felt a little bit sorry for everyone. Was piling everyone on our side in this particular battle, the right side, obviously, uh, piled into her, um, uh, and I did. I did feel a kind of smidgen of pity for her, and thought, crikey, what a baptism of fire.
0: Far too generous there, Toby, and she was absolutely appalling. Why are Talk TV playing the woke card? What is Murdoch doing? What's Piers Morgan thinking while he's away? Mind you, Piers Morgan does things like this himself. His show should be renamed Piers Morgan. I demand an apology because all he ever does is ask as a guest, are you going to apologize for that then? As if he's some sort of moral paragon. Absolute ridiculous. But um, well, another thing about it, Toby, is that Graham Linnehan said brilliantly. Frida Wallace, which is some trans activist person, has written an email to Andrew Doyle, boasting that he prepped Rosanna Lockwood for the talk TV interview. I haven't talked to Andrew about that, but that's that was then denied by Rosanna Lockwood, who said they talked, they just did some other thing earlier, some other segment. I can't remember exactly, but she never, this person never prepped her. So don't know on that, but it certainly seemed that way, in, in, in terms of the tone of the interview, and I thought the 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 way she then didn't learn anything or self-reflect. She just put out a statement, you know, saying, well, you know, bullying, hypocrisy and I'll call out bullying, hypocrisy, and misinformation wherever I see it. It's like, why don't you start with yourself? She seems to have an absolute lack of self-reflection. And in conclusion, Toby, she reminded me of the narcissistic but quite attractive women that I'm so drawn to. And so of course, you know, <laughs> I found myself slightly fancying her while hating her.
1: Yeah. Um I feel the same way about Grace Blakely, I think. Um <laughs> who I, I find I, it, it's the it's the kind of the, the the kind of moral righteousness, the kind of the, the haughtiness, that combination of kind of um, uh, kind of intellectual and moral superiority. Um, uh, I find I, for some, for maybe for, some, for entirely masochistic reasons, I find that quite appealing. <laughs> I was a bit worried about her age. she's thirty,
0: so we can calm down. You, you're all right, and I don't know how old Lockwood is, but she's definitely a reasonable age. So. Um, yeah, it's weird. Eh? We're obviously both total sickos, but um, in that regard. But yeah, it's—I I don't know. She, she was awful. Just complete. There's a lot of those types in media. Just this sort of kind of someone described. I think it might have been Gareth Roberts described as flint-hearted. There's a lot of flint-hearted types in in media, isn't there? You just think you're sociopaths basically, and some nice people too, of course. I should say that. Um, and then, just in the comedy world, as a sort of follow-up to this, there was this interesting video that resurfaced as the phrase is and Gareth Roberts has written an excellent piece about this in The Spectator. He's one of the few writers on my level in the country and he says the, he calls it the endless hypocrisy of the comedy class and it was a, a video it was a clip from 2008 of Dara O'Brien and Michael McIntyre and um, James Corden, Sean Locke, now sadly deceased, uh, Claudia Winkleman, Davina McCall and they were all talking about a man having a baby and you know how absurd and ridiculous it would be and and uh, McIntyre points out, you know, if you, if you said, what what's the sex of the baby? He'd, he'd say, how dare you? And 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 uh, Sean Locke called it an abomination, which was pretty funny. And it was, it was you know, it was, it was pretty funny. But it was what people used to say in, until 2008. And now, of course, they can't say that. And Dara O'Brien says all the regime talking points. And he's pointing out this hypocrisy and this kind of absurd changing of, of minds that people do. And they just change to fit in. I'm going to just see if I can find my tweet because I put it better than I'm going to say it now. Well, as I, like I said, it was another excellent piece, eloquently demonstrating that regime comedians will say absolutely anything to stay in the club. Even video evidence of their real contrary beliefs makes no difference as it's all about whether you're prepared to say 2 plus 2 equals 5. So that's it, basically. It's Even if we can show your real beliefs from just a few years ago, you, as long as you just say the new beliefs now, then you're still in the club because it's all about just saying them. Even if they're not true, we don't care if you actually mm. think it. Are you prepared to go along? And I'm always on about this, aren't I? I just realized I always say this on the podcast. But are you like, prepared to go along with the new beliefs? And uh, and the other thing I'll just quickly say is this this is what happens when you've undergone a stealth cultural revolution. We go back and change. Our, we, we apologize for things in the past, in the more distant past. We apologize for anything colonial. And then more recent in the more recent past we ban films or we put a warning on films or we edit a sitcom and then even more recently than that 2008 we have a clip that we have to all sort of pretend we deny you know i don't know it's just it's just kind of constant memory holding or or constant revisionism of the cultural revolution maybe i've not put that very well what do you make of it toby
1: yeah it was um i think it, it, it exemplified i think um one of the faces of um, comedians. So if we think of comedians as having, of largely falling into two types, um, there's there's the kind of ideal type, um, which is people who are completely fearless, who confront power with its own moral shortcomings, with its hypocrisy, um, and, uh, and provide comfort to the afflicted by afflicting the comfortable um, they're you know they're, they're, they're punching up um uh, and and uh, and they're, they're displaying courage and by being courageous um and fearless in the face of these powerful figures and reigning orthodoxies they empower other people uh, make them feel a little bit a little bit less alone um, a little bit less intimidated by these kind of dominant forces so there's that kind of comedian the best kind. And then there's the kind of evil kind in which they do the opposite. Um, They flatter the powerful. They reinforce reigning orthodoxies by ridiculing those um, who challenge them. Um, uh, They're a kind of instrument of conformism. They're like Maoist comedians. Um, uh, So you've got the kind of Orwellian comedians on the one hand and the Maoist comedians on the other. And these, this lot are obviously in the Maoist camp. Um, And I remember once um, making this point when discussing... Um, uh, uh, the um, act of Stuart Lee and said so that he really is the ultimate example of a Maoist stand-up who is just enforcing whatever the kind of reigning liberal orthodoxy is and taking the mickey out of anyone who dares to challenge it and just kind of embodying kind of ideological fashion in this kind of rather vicious way uh, really viciously lampooning anyone who is slightly at odds with you know the absolute dogmatic center of kind of Maoist orthodoxy and I said I said that about him and I think I, I think I, I used the line like um, Stuart Lee is everything a stand-up comedian shouldn't be he's the opposite of an ideal stand-up comic and I learned the other day that he actually quotes that in his promotional literature when he's trying to promote his tours, you know, the opposite of what a good comedian should be, Toby Young. And I think sells tickets <laughs> on the back of that.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, he's always done that, to be fair. He's always quoted the glowing reviews and the vicious reviews right. on his poster next to each other. And, and quite ironically, one of the glowing ones used to be Ricky Gervais. But then when he sort of switched more to the anti-woke side, Stuart Lee wrote a scathing article suggesting he kill himself. Uh, the person who basically resurrected Lee's career by giving him a great quote. Because Stuart Lee stopped doing stand-up for a while. He noticed things influenced by him, such as Ricky Gervais, were doing well. So he came back to stand-up armed with a quote from Gervais, who was massive at the time. And this is when a quote could do a lot in the kind of pre-internet DVD era. And that relaunched him. But then he later wrote this horrendous piece about Gervais. But yeah, that's interesting, Toby. I mean, Stuart Lee... Is actually a great comedian technically, so it's all, its almost sort of more dangerous because he—he enforces the orthodoxy with brilliant comedic technique. There's a lot of these comedians, regime comedians, are, are rubbish. They—they have the regime part, not the comedian part. They're just an activist who's prepared, who happens to be the right race and gender, maybe, and they just are given everything and they can't actually do comedy. Stuart Lee actually is a, is an excellent comedian and now uses it for evil. And he didn't—it didn't used to be that straightforward because. He could imagine he was still anti-establishment in some way. He probably wasn't because he'd still been to Oxford and got straight on the BBC. But he seemed a bit more kind of uh, anti-establishment. Whereas now he just clearly purely is the establishment.
1: Yeah, one of the quirks of regime comedians is that they think of themselves as um, fearless members of the anti-establishment. It's a kind of there's an element of self-deception, isn't there? They, they, they think of themselves as, as, as punching up rather than punching down. They don't think of themselves as, you know, paid up, creatures of the regime they think that they're that they're you know these kind of fearless outsiders attacking the status quo and you know the patriarchy um, i suppose it's sort of and that, that kind of confusion crept into the response to matthew goodwin's book about the new elite how can you possibly describe bus as the elite not the land-owning Tory gentry they're the elite um, it's as though they're kind of their their vision of of of, you know who's in control who the powerful are in contemporary britain seems to be kind of rooted almost in this kind of in the 1960s or the 1950s as far as they're concerned it's still the, the tory squirearchy it's not kind of um you know um uh, people like eddie is <laughs> on anyway
0: exactly and i've always felt it'd be way more interesting if, if a stuart lee type wrestled with it, the fact that he is now the establishment i think that would be a far more interesting show but um and by the way, it's quite encouraging though that the term regime comedian seems to be everywhere now on Twitter. And I semi think I invented it because I started using it a while ago, but I I, I can't, maybe I took it from somewhere without realising, but I semi think I might have invented it. But it's uh, it's certainly everywhere now either way. So it's, people are catching up to this this idea. And speaking of do you think in, regime it, it, comedians, it, 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 oh, go on. It, it,
1: it, so, I was just going to say, do you think that in, in Mao's China um, or Stalin's Russia, there actually were kind of... Um, court jesters, as it were, um, uh, regime comedians who kind of got to, you know, entertain the Politburo um, on special occasions and, uh, and, and and you know, played to kind of stadium-like audiences where, you know, the first person to stop clapping got carded off to a labor camp. <laughs> or stop, especially the first person to stop laughing got carded off to Siberia.
0: <laughs> That's interesting. And I, you remind me of something I was about to say, actually, about it, which is... Um, which is that your two types of comedians there, you outlined it well, but but the regime type of comedian, the Maoist one, should never be a comedian. A comedian is supposed to obviously push back at power. The jester does it. He does it in a risky way. If he goes too far, the king kills him. You're sort of suggesting the opposite. Maybe there was a Maoist comedian that just just uh, advocated the regime. But yeah, that, that regime comedian should never exist. It shouldn't be a thing because it goes against what a comedian is. You could have two types of politicians, one who is a reformer, one who's you know one who wants to who who makes sure the establishment runs smoothly, and you can make an argument for it. The one that wants to stay in the EU, okay, he's more concerned about stability in the economy. The one who wants to leave is more concerned about sovereignty. You can make an argument for that. Whereas comedians, there is no way you can have a regime comedian. It's an oxymoron. It's like gamble responsibly. It can't. It's not a thing. How can you have a, a comedian is never there to uphold the orthodoxy. So they're all scum, basically
1: yeah and, and there's an interesting that there's a kind of a cousin of regime comedians are regime satirists and i'm thinking in particular of the barbie film which i know you you haven't seen on principle um but um one of one of the targets of the satire in barbie is is mattel the organization that manufactures barbie and that has co-produced the film i mean mattel's rainbow logo is at the beginning of the film. Um, and uh, But the board of Mattel is all white men, all white middle-aged men in the film, and they behave ridiculously like automatons, um, desperate to kind of prop up the patriarchy. And it's almost like this is approved satire. So Mattel has basically paid this regime satirist in the form of Greta Gerwig to create a piece of satire about the Board of Mattel. It's approved, like regime approved satire of the regime. Um, that, that, I think mm. in some ways that's even lower than regime comedians.
0: Yeah, that's interesting because it's fake satire. Sat- oh yes, we are terrible white men, although they act, might actually be white men and they're not going to give up their job. But as long as you satirize it, they can stay. But, but they've approved it themselves. Yeah, and, and it's really not where the cutting edge is because we're not in a patriarchy. It'd be far more edgy if they'd attack feminism, but they wouldn't do that because it's a regime satire. Yeah, that's very interesting. But to, to understand it properly, like I said, I'll have to watch it, and I haven't watched Barbie on principle, and the principle is that I live alone and have no friends. So <laughs> one more thing on comedy, Toby. I thought we'd just quickly have a look at the so-called joke of the fringe. So they always pick these best jokes of the fringe, and they usually just a PR exercise, to be fair, and what they do is they pick the person. They pick the person now in comedy they're going to promote. And it's usually some posh weirdo. And then then the comedy follows later, if at all. And that's how it works. And, and they invariably pick some person that would never appeal to the public. And that's why winners of the Edinburgh Fringe Award, you'll see them a month later asking for temp work on Facebook. Because it's been a long time since the Edinburgh Fringe was in any way connected with what would actually be popular or good. You know, it used to be that people like Frank Skinner won it. And then a certain year, it became the most obscure you know, ballet show, reinterpreting comedy as ballet with no jokes. Yes, I win. how terribly brilliant. Well, that, that will win, and uh, no one will ever watch it in the real world. Anyway, that's probably what's gone on here. So the winning joke came from Lorna Rose Treen, who, again, just immediately sounds and looks harsh Might not be. And the joke is, I started dating a zookeeper, but it turned out he was a cheater. And this joke doesn't work on any level. It's absolutely fascinating. I would almost say it's not even a joke. It doesn't even achieve the level of joke. It's simply a sentence that's a non sequitur. I mean, Ben Sixsmith pointed this out, and he rewrote the joke immediately in a way that was already better. He said, at least do something like, I was dating a poultry farmer, but it turned out he was seeing other chicks. That's better. I was dating a zookeeper, but it turned out he was seeing a cougar on the side. That works. This joke, I was dating a zookeeper... But it turned out he was a cheater. It doesn't work on any level. It's not a joke. I speak here as someone with 11 years of professional comedy experience, known as one of the best joke writers in the country. You can go and watch my stand-up on YouTube and and disagree if you like, but you'll be wrong. So what did you make of that, Toby? It's it's absolutely shocking.
1: Yeah, it, it was, I mean, maybe I'm not quite as down on it as you, but I did have to read it a couple of times to try and figure out, you know, I, I, it, it didn't withstand any kind of scrutiny or analysis. I that think that's fair to say. Um, it didn't really. Yeah, work, it doesn't work as a joke. Um, no, because uh, 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 what, if it's a what I can, people, hard to believe is a, it doesn't work. Yeah, what? What? I suppose you know you have cheaters in zoos and it's a pun. Um, but I agree, it's a pun. But 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 it's um, but it, it can't possibly have been the best one-liner at the Edinburgh. I mean, Simon Evans was at Edinburgh this year. I mean. Simon Evans's entire routine is made up of better one-liners than that. I mean, it's extraordinary that that could have been. That what? Who's who's, who? Are the judges here? You know, who decides? It's just incredible. It's as you say, they 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 pick someone who um, exemplifies what the regime wants a comedian to represent.
0: Yeah, well, it's funny you say that because I've already claimed on Twitter that Simon Evans just saying "and" or "the" is funnier than this joke. And so just Simon Evans speaking and just being in a room is already much funnier. Well, the second one was the most British thing I've ever heard. A lady who said, well, I'm sorry, but I don't apologize. It's sort of moderately amusing if delivered right, but not a good joke. Last year, I had a great joke about inflation, but it's hardly worth it now. Awful as well from Amos Gill. Really poor. Uh, when women gossip, we get called bitchy, but when men do it, it's called a podcast. All right. I mean, whatever. It's like a remark. It could be sort of moderately amusing as part of a set maybe. Maybe. I thought I'd start off with a joke about the Titanic just to break the ice. Not good. How do celiac <laughs> Germans greet each other? Gluten tag. Bad. My fr- and here's a really bad one. My friend got locked in a Costa place. A- sorry. My friend got locked in a coffee place overnight. i ruined it now. Now he only goes into Starbucks. Not the rivals. He's Costa I mean, that's so bad. You have to reverse engineer that. When you're using <laughs> a phrase like not the rivals, and it's taking you three sentences to get to that awful... That is so poor. It really, it offends me on a deep, deep level. Bennett Aaron's all right, but he said, I entered the how not to surrender competition and I won hands down. I mean, okay. This one I think is the only really decent one. Nationwide must have looked pretty silly when they opened their first branch. I can live with that joke. That's actually pretty reasonable. Then this one, my grandma describes herself as being in her twilight years, which I love because they're great films. I almost give that a pass because the sort of the narrator of that joke is so sort of stupid that it's kind of like, it's deliberately stupid and I almost think that is sort of funny how stupid they're being I almost give that a pass I mean I happy to compare one of my own jokes I mean I did one offended Christians a little bit other Christians loved it so I talk about how hard it's come out to be a Christian and I say I told my daddy I was Christian he was so embarrassed I had to tell him I was gay just to take the edge off he was like Jesus Christ I was like yeah that's him how do you know that joke delivered incredibly badly there is still better than any of these jokes and I'll uh I'll put money on that. We should go and watch it on my YouTube, and I'd do it much better. What do you think of any of these jokes, Toby? Any of them? Any yeah, the,
1: well, interestingly, you were reading them out. All the runners-up were better than the winner. I mean, they weren't brilliant, but, but they were all better than the one that won, which is sort of odd.
0: That often happens with the Edinburgh Joke Award. No one knows... Why really? funny is, I just, I've barely been out of comedy. I already don't know any of these people. I know Sakeez is like, I've seen her MC some gigs. Masai Graham's been around for ages. Masai Graham, because he's also a, a doctor, I think, or something. And then Bennett Aaron. But I actually don't know the majority of them. So it moves on very quickly to these new people. Most of them regime comedians, no doubt. And the jokes were just very, very bad. Yeah, but that's just, this is what we expect. Anyway, I thought it might be moderately amusing to look at that section, and how bad the jokes were. Feel free to go to my comedy unleashed set. It's called "How When What If Hitler Started a Comedy Night" or something like that. And uh, you can rank any of my jokes against any of those jokes, and uh, I'll happily some, I'll of, happily my, some my of my against j- them. S- some of my
1: jokes are better too. I, 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 you can go check out my um, stand up, my, fifth, my ten minutes of stand up, also at comedy unleashed, called um, "Proud to Be a Deplorable." Um, I, I, don't, I don't had one go at it, and his jokes
0: good. are still better. The <laughs> yeah, cheetah joke just really ball bothered ball me because that's it, it, like that a six year old. That's like a six-year-old told you a joke and you went, oh, very good. Just to humor it. I started
1: dating a Ziki, oh, it, but
0: It turned out he was a cheater. It, my,
1: my, my, I my gag was, um, I, actually, I've got, I've got nothing against trans people. In fact, my grandfather dressed up as a woman once. It was the only way he could get off the Titanic. That's better, not right? Not bad.
0: <laughs> See, that's not bad. That's already better. That is already better. Wow. Toby Young, best joke of the fringe. Um, it's funny that I can't tell my own jokes anymore and... Uh, I've just been out of the game so long, shocking! Um, but go to my YouTube. So, Toby, would you like to do an advert?
1: Yep, yeah, I'll do an ad. This is an ad for um, uh, a book by uh, DC Alden. Dear caller, you're a free thinker, or you wouldn't be listening to the Weekly Skeptic. But what do free thinkers do to relax? Many of us still enjoy a good book. So, I'd like to introduce you to fellow free thinker and best-selling author DC Alden. A former soldier and police officer, DC writes with pace, style, and genuine authority, and his thrillers have been described as a fusion of Frederick Forsyth, Tom Clancy, Clive Custler, and Andy McNabb. Global pandemics, UFO mysteries, and military action so real, it'll make you die for cover. DC's hard-hitting novels have garnered thousands of five-star ratings on Amazon. So why not check out Invasion Downfall, the first thrilling episode of his chart-topping Invasion UK series. Some say it's fiction, others the shape of things to come. Why don't you decide? Head on over to Amazon now and discover the dark, dangerous, and gripping world of top G thriller writer DC Alden.
0: All right, thanks for that. So should we go across the pond? We sometimes go across the pond and look at American... Politics and culture, and a few things have gone on this week. Trump refused to be in the d- debates, which seemed quite an astute move. I called him the, the new Theresa May because he's like, "I'm so far ahead, why should I debate anyone?" And instead, he said he was going to go on Tucker Carlson, which is quite a bold move. Because, uh, but it's also quite a logical move because Fox are useless now. Fox have become sort of regime. They attack Trump, and he's just gone, "F you." I'm going to go on with Tuck on Twitter and get way more views, although it will mean a sort of return of Trump to Twitter, I suppose. I'm not exactly sure how it's going to work or where it's going to be, but presumably. And uh, what do you think of that first,
1: Toby? Well, I suppose it's um, one of the rules of politics that um, the front runner is always very reluctant to debate um, because he's got very little to gain and a great deal to lose. Um, And it always comes up, you know, during general election campaigns in the UK. And I dare say in the next general election campaign, Rishi Sunak will be kind of uh, clamoring for a one-on-one debate with uh, with with Keir Starmer, and Keir Starmer will be saying, no, no, pointless. What's the point? Um, but I guess you know it's it's a bit of a break with tradition in the US, where during the primaries, the different candidates, you know, um, jostling for the their party's nomination do usually debate. Um, but I guess it's not a surprise that that, that Trump is opting out. Um, I, I, when is when is the actual debate where all the kind of um, Republican nominees are going to be going at each other, hammer and tongs? That should be quite entertaining because um, I don't suppose Ron DeSantis will hold anything back when um, attacking Vivek Ramaswamy.
0: Well, I think it's on Wednesday. Uh, we're recording on Tuesday. Is it, um, you've asked me, live but i think it's on wednesday but um because i know Farage okay. is out there as well for gb news but it, it says in the article i'm reading that it's, it's not clear when it or what platform it will be on because trump's got this com- complicated thing where he has to he has that fiduciary responsibility to trump to trump to uh, truth social it's not called trump social that'd be good though so i'm not sure what platform it's going to be on but surely it'll be twitter anyway he's not doing the debate it's going to they're going to put that out from Tucker Carlson up against the debates they've already recorded it apparently that's what I'm reading now but yeah you're right I mean Vivek in the debate would probably annihilate Trump if we're honest how do you feel about Vivek Toby have you uh, have you swapped over
1: um I'm definitely warming up to Vivek um and um as you know I've been um a a, a big fan of uh, Ron DeSantis' until now. Um, But it looks as though, you know, Vivek is the coming man and Ron hasn't been able to kind of uh, impose himself on the race and he's now beginning to fade and some of his big donors are deserting him, uh, whereas Vivek seems to be getting stronger. And as someone who would prefer the Republican nominee not to be Trump, because I do think that Biden can beat Trump, I'm, I'm I'm beginning to sh- I can feel my allegiance is shifting towards Vivek. He wrote this great book called Woke Inc. Um, he's kind of, you know, he, he, Ron DeSantis is a is is a, is a kind of anti woke candidate, but in some ways Vivek's anti woke credentials are pretty good too, um, maybe even better. Um, uh, and he's and if you look at his Ten Commandments, I mean, a lot of it is kind of exactly in the right place from a kind of culture war point of view. Uh, so I, I do find him quite appealing and he's, he's very slick. He's quite charismatic. Do you see him do the Eminem song? I thought he was, he was remarkably good at um, doing kind of karaoke to Eminem. Um, and yeah. I don't know if you saw him in that exchange with the, I think we talked did we talk about this last week. He had the exchange with the pansexual reporter, who, I mean, some people thought that she was asking him a gotcha question, but I didn't think so. But um, he dealt with the kind of whole trans issue are trans women women? Should trans women be able to compete with biological women in women's sports? He dealt with it all very, very effectively. I mean, he didn't waver from a hardline position from our point of view, um, but did it in a relatively humane way good tempered, reasonable sounding way. So I thought, well, crikey, you know, he'd be a huge asset from the point of view of defeating the kind of massed orcs of the kind of woke horde, uh, probably m- much, much more effective than Trump. One worry I have is that let's say Trump does beat Biden, you know, the woke movement, I think, is now beginning to, you um, uh, uh, you can you can see it's sort of not quite in its death throes, but um, it's beginning to fade quite quickly. Uh, and you can imagine that a Trump victory next year would be like applying the defibrillator to the kind of corpse of the woke movement and it would suddenly spring back to life like Freddy Krueger and uh, we'd have to deal with mm. another four years of woke madness.
0: Well, that's very much the sort of domestic abuse victims take on it, where you're like, they'll just hurt us even more if we, if we go with Trump. Whereas I, so I don't think like that at all. I think that's terrible. I think we, we hit them with everything. And that's why I want it to be Trump, really. And Trump from prison would be pretty amazing. I, but Vivek, in a fair system, a fair primary system and a fair election... I actually think Vivek would win. It's kind of a bold prediction, but that caveat, because, because I don't think it will be fair, but I think he has some of the energy of Obama. When Obama came through at first, people were like, wow, this guy. But then at first they didn't think he could win. But then it became clear, of course, he would win. I think Vivek has some of that. But I, I think Vivek wins in a fair election. I think he has the energy of Obama. No one thought Obama could win, then he did. He, we just saw him playing shirtless tennis. I've seen him playing piano on Nixon's old piano. This guy's extraordinary. He he was a multimillionaire in his twenties. He was a, he had a science degree. Then he used his science knowledge to invest in biotech, etc. He became a multimillionaire. He's working at a hedge fund, and he just goes, "Tell you what, I want to know more about law. I'm just going to go and do a law degree." And then they say, "Well, okay, you can do that on the side." So then he's working at a hedge fund, doing a law degree on the side, just so he learns more about the constitution, and and he does all this, and he, he becomes a multimillionaire. He's still only thirty eight. Some people have estimate his net worth. I've seen like five hundred million up anywhere up to like a billion the guy's still only 38 he's absolutely extraordinary has the charisma has the speaking skill no one's going to ever have trump charisma which is like 10 out of 10 but vivek certainly has probably a seven or eight and then he has many other areas as well he's obviously trounced DeSantis. he's not quite ahead of him in the polls yet but he's ahead in sort of public imagination i think in a fair election he would win i think trump would also win but of course i don't believe the election is going to be fair i think if we step back and we just soberly look at what we have now in america we have a Country where they put their prime opposition in prison or are trying to and hit him with every kind of charge, the idea they'll have a fair election
1: to me is sort of fanciful at, at this point. But I know you probably disagree on that, Toby. Yeah, I do disagree on that. Um, I think, um, yeah, I mean, what would be interesting to see is um, whether Vivek switches tactics now. I mean, I think initially. You know, probably the most he could hope for was to establish himself as, you know, a future contender, make a good enough showing, um, not be eliminated first. So, you know, he's then credible in four years' time as a Republican nominee. But actually, you know, at some point, I think he adjusted his expectations expectations upwards and maybe thought maybe I could become Trump's running mate you know I'm doing well enough um uh, uh, and I I appeal to people that Trump doesn't necessarily appeal to I've got more energy um I could be a good vice president and now I imagine he's probably thinking I'm doing so well maybe I can actually challenge Trump for the nomination uh, particularly if he <laughs> ends up in jail um so it'll be interesting to see where he goes next
0: yeah and just a reference to your Ten Commandments thing. He never calls them the Ten Commandments because that would, of course, be blasphemous, presumably. But he does call them. He just. I think he just calls them truths or whatever. And they're sort of ten statements that Vivek has issued. And it's uh, number one: God is real. That's a good one. He's actually a Hindu, of course. And uh, you you might beg the question: Which God? Anyway, God is real. Two: There are two genders. Three: Human flourishing requires fossil fuels. Reverse racism is racism. An open border is no border. Parents determine the education of their children. The nuclear family is the greatest form of governance known to mankind. Capitalism lifts people up from poverty. There are three branches of the US government, not four. The US Constitution is the strongest guarantor of freedoms in history. Pretty solid. I mean, they're all totally solid. So, Yeah, very solid. You know, yes. And also, he's a 9-11 truther as well. I don't think he's a
1: 9-11 truther. <laughs> I know you got that wrong, I think. Uh, <laughs> he did dispute one aspect of the official 9-11 narrative. I think he thought it was unlikely that um, the US th- intelligence wouldn't have known uh, more about these um, pilots, these trainee pilots, um, uh, wouldn't have been completely kind of sandbagged by them, ambushed, as it were. Um, and the links I don't to Saudi Arabia. I, I don't, yeah, and the, and the links to Saudi Arabia. Maybe he thinks that, that the official report has played down the links to Saudi Arabia in order to preserve... A good relationship with, with the Saudis um, but I don't think he, he goes beyond that, I don't think you could describe him as a 9-11 truther
0: Okay, we have to move on because you're being cooked by your family and we have to move on, you think the fact that you stopped doing London Calling, that's a whole podcast you're not doing in the week, wins you even more time for our thousands of dedicated listeners, but anyway we're being rushed yeah. because of Toby's life uh, but anyway so we've got to quickly move on, let's do the X-Files So the big X-File this week is that Elon Musk is going to remove the block button, which basically everyone hates as an idea. Basically 99% of people hate it, and everyone's been pointing this out to him. But now he's started blocking people who've pointed it out, even very high-profile accounts like Cat Turd and James Woods, and strangely, Malik Obama, I think. Barack Obama's half-brother, is it? And the only person that seems to like the idea is Jack, who's the person that ruined... Twitter in the first place yeah. and Elon Musk is like Jack understands and he's doing that classic egotistical thing when someone has an idea that they refuse to admit is bad he just finds that yeah. he just everyone who says it's bad he just ignores and then he just, he just praises the one person who agrees with him which is Jack and by the way the way he's defending it is saying just mute people and we'll make mute more like block anyway well then just keep block what do you think
1: <laughs> it's a slightly odd one isn't it um, it's almost as though you know the kind of classic kind of um, jibe against people like me and Andrew Doyle and you is that you call yourself a free speech lover Um, but you've blocked me or you've blocked so-and-so you know how could you block all these people and claim to be a believer in free speech you're a hypocrite and you know and there's a kind of standard very standard response to that is which is you know just because you're pro-free speech doesn't mean you're obliged to listen to people you know Hurl insults at you. You know, being in favour of free speech doesn't doesn't mean you're forced to listen to the opposing point of view. Um, uh, uh, you know, it should it should be your choice. Um, uh, but it's almost as though Obama, um, uh, Obama Musk has kind of heard that kind of bog standard Owen Jones jibe and concluded that there's something to it. So if X is going to be the world's leading pro free speech social media platform, then he has to dispense with the block button. Hey. What, what is his kind of rationale? Is it that he doesn't want Twitter to be an echo chamber? Uh, he wants people to, to listen to the other side more, and therefore they can't block them. And as you say, if he's, if he's beefing up the mute button, what is the point?
0: Yeah, no one has f- fully worked out the rationale, but there's suspicion is it's something to do with advertisers. You know, they're desperate for revenue, fair enough. And it's something to do with, you know, it's too easy to block advertisers or something like that. Ah, okay. That's what people yeah. suspect. But anyone with any kind of reasonably large account points out, Okay, the problem with mute is you might be able to mute them, but then you can't stop them attacking everyone in your replies and just harassing your sort of community. And mm. I've noticed the people who say they love it, with respect to people with like 26 followers, and then people like that, and then people say that I'm attacking them, and they say, oh, that's a someone said to me, that's a low blow, but they're thinking that I attach some sort of great importance to followers, which I don't. When I say, you haven't got many followers, therefore you don't really get it, I'm just saying that as a statement with no sort of value in it, just saying this is a fact just as I don't get what Andrew Doyle goes through, or you, because I only have 20 point something thousand. So Zuby says it starts to kick in around 10,000. And then in the 100,000, you really need the block button. And I've already noticed, you know, just the amount of hate you get and the amount of nonsense. And imagine how much Andrew Doyle gets, and then it goes up and up. And then at a certain level, like Musk, you are kind of protected when you're in sort of in the millions and you're sort of far above it all. And you're ultra rich, and you're the richest man in the world. I don't think you are affected. I think it's in that sort of hundred thousand, I think Zuby's right, in that kind of hundred thousand range, and even at my range, but in, especially in that range, you're probably right in the firing line, probably in your range, yeah. Toby, you're right in the firing yeah. line. Yeah, but like, I can, I can see why yeah, for you, thick
1: this, 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 yeah, for someone less thick skinned such as yourself, I imagine that um, not being able to block people who are going to be really rude to you um, could make X very unattractive. Um, how are you going to cope?
0: Well, you know what, Toby, I haven't blocked as many as you think. I, I, don't, I do quite a lot of soft blocks now where I just they just bump, bump. You just block and unblock so they're just not following you so not to see their garbage. Because I, I can only see stuff from followers ever since my mini cancellation. I only see stuff from followers anyway, which is a good recommendation from someone. But if I actually looked at it and I'd, I'd only blocked 492 people. And Gareth Roberts posted, and he's a great writer, that he'd, he'd blocked 55,000 people. So that was extraordinary, wow. so I think I'm actually I don't actually bought that many, but I'm arguing for it anyway because I just think it's a it's a good function, and it's obviously idiotic to get rid of it. And it's one of these musk moves where you just go, well, I hope he's playing 4D chess, but at the moment it just looks annoying, and I just hope he doesn't yeah. do it but let's see. We have limited time. Did you want to quickly touch on this logan Dylan Dennis thing? I don't know if some of our listeners will have heard this because it's sort of maybe a certain demographic, but Logan Paul is going to fight Dylan. Dennis. and These words may not mean anything to you, but Logan Paul is like a massive YouTuber. Probably people do know now Dylan Dallas is a sort of a fighter, but not a boxer. He's a jujitsu guy. They're going to have a boxing match if it happens in October. And Logan attacked him in some low blows and so on. So then he got back at Logan by posting endless photos of his fiance with various men. And I thought they were like AI or Photoshop. It turns out most of them were real. Like some of them were obviously like jokes that are Photoshop but an, an awful lot of them are real. And it just seems like she's gone through every man in the celebrity world. And now everyone's saying, what's Logan going to do? He hasn't said anything back. He's turned off his comments. He's he's issued some sort of legal threat. But he hasn't really done anything about it. And people are saying, you can't marry this girl, Logan, because it just her body count is so high, to use the terminology the kids use now. And also, there was a clip going around of her saying she wouldn't sleep with Logan for ages, and she sort of made him wait ages. And it's this thing of like girls making certain guys wait but not other ones and people are just saying how can you now marry this person but it's also doing a strange thing that it's kind of damaging it's kind of a, a good a win for the sort of trad con world and the idea that actually women shouldn't be going to sleep with everyone and actually it's bad for men and women and we should all sort of stop this and people are seeing it as a win in that way what did you think Toby?
1: yeah i mean i i think the first thing to say is that um You're taking it for granted that um, if she's photographed, you know, with her arm around one of these men, that means that she must have slept with them, which is a bit of a leap. I mean, maybe she's just posed with a lot of celebs. Maybe she's just very flirtatious. Um, uh, A lot of them are confirmed, like
0: Leonardo DiCaprio and lots of other ones.
1: Yeah. I mean, what struck me about it, actually, was first of all, she's very attractive. Secondly, she's been linked to lots of kind of A-list celebrities. A lot. Um, uh, so, in a way, isn't it quite, isn't it quite complimentary um, uh, for, for Logan Paul that she's, you know, she's going from Leo to him. It's like, uh, you know, I always thought of him as a YouTuber and therefore like a slightly B-list, possibly even a C-list celeb, not in the same class as a bona fide movie star. But here he is. So here is here is a sort of symbol that, um, from a status point of view, from the point of view of a kind of fortune-seeking model turned actress. Um, he is as desirable as Leonardo DiCaprio or some basketball player. Um, So in a way, you know, Milan Kundera famously said that... um, women aren't attracted to attractive men. They're attracted to men that associate with attractive women because it reflects well on them. Um, if he goes out with all these beautiful girls and if he goes out with me, must mean I'm a beautiful girl um, and yeah, slightly sexist, but, yeah, you know, but, uh, but, 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 um, uh, so from Logan Paul's point of view, you know, the fact that she has been with all these kind of high status, traditionally high status A-listers is probably, you know, what makes her so attractive because if she's now prepared to marry him, it's like elevating him from a kind of YouTuber to someone on the A-list. You
0: know, and, and what you're missing there, Toby, is that Lo, um, Leonardo DiCaprio just went out of there briefly and got rid of her, probably when she turned 25, which is his thing, whereas <laughs> Logan has to marry her. So the humiliation is that he's marrying this girl who's considered by all these celebrities to be a mere kind of date a few times. I'm using date as a euphemism. Whereas... You know Logan's actually marrying, and it's like, oh, you don't marry her. She's not, you know, she's not married. They've all figured out she's not marriage material. Okay, she's a uh, what a friend of mine once called a side something. This is the guy I knew from the streets. He side word beginning with B. He was a he was a kid in the streets. But anyway, the point is, the point, She's not marriage material. Whereas he has to marry her, and now he's been humiliated probably. That's how the internet are taking it. Anyway, uh, that's not necessarily me saying it, and that goes for everything I've said today. But the um. I don't it, know, it seems to me to say be, by the way, I, I, I,
1: oh, have you watched mm-hmm. any videos of, um, of this Dylan guy fighting? Um, I mean, I, I watched one and he's not particularly impressive kind of one-on-one when they're kind of sparring. Um, but when he gets you on the ground, his thing is he gets people on the ground. And then grappling, they can't yeah. get up again. And he's he's really good at grappling. And I, if I was, and it was like a nightmare. The idea of being of this guy kind of being <laughs> all over you and not letting you get up and just kind of taking these kind of shots at you when you're on the ground and kind of not being able to shake him off when he gets on your back. It was like it was like something out of, like you know, a saw movie. And uh, if I was Logan Paul, I'd be seriously rethinking this uh, contest.
0: I uh, know, but their boxing. And, and Logan uh, is much better at boxing. So he's still a big favorite. He's a big guy. It's I think just boxing, I, man. It's I, not. I think so. It's not I haven't been following fighting, it that okay. much, but I believe it's boxing. You know, he's gone the distance with Floyd Mayweather, who, of course, is much smaller. He's not as good as Jake Paul, but he's a better boxer. So I haven't followed it enough to make a prediction on the on the winner, but that's the problem. When you get these grapplers trying to okay. box, they can't really do it. In a similar way, Tommy Fury is going to destroy KSI, who's a YouTuber trying to box, whereas Fury is a professional boxer, which is also happening on the same bill. It's meant to be happening anyway. Um, I mean, that's that one. I mean, I don't know. Some people are saying it's all tied to hoflation. Have you heard of hoflation, Toby? This is a good no, thing to hoflation. keep you away from your family from on holiday to ask you about. Well, it's to do with like the idea that in the past, your grandfather only had to you know, have a basic job or whatever, and you could get a great woman who was awesome. Now, you have to work much harder to get a much worse woman. And the idea is it's called hoflation. And someone's written here, the tide is turning, Wholeflation has begun to take effect. The market can only be gained for so long before a correction is inevitable. And people are sort of seeing this Logan Paul phenomenon as part of that. It's sort of like, hang on, this is not a good thing to to have gone out with this many guys. And they're seeing it as part of the wider, fine, finally deflationary trend in the wholeflation phenomenon. But we can... I know. Maybe we can talk about that in future. <laughs> in um, so, so. a corner.
1: on what, what what's on. what's the Bank of England in this scenario? Who, 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 who is, is there some is there some regulator that will intervene in the market if hoflation is getting out of control to try and bring it back down?
0: Yeah, I don't think there has been. And that's why it's got so out of control. It seems to be just a completely free market. So yeah, maybe that's the problem. But, yeah, it's tricky. Isn't it it's, it's complicated. It's, it's partly to do with dating apps and and the global the market going global. I think it used to be naturally regulated by national borders, but when everything went global, when you could just get on a dating app and meet someone from around the world, that caused whole flames. Because otherwise, you could, you could the theory was you could meet a pretty girl in like your Romanian village, and there was only like two guys in the village anyway. But now that girl can go on Instagram and she'd be on a boat with Drake in Dubai, and so this kind of you know. So then they all went to the top few men, and then you know it's all part of it. It's all very it's a Pareto okay. principle, Pareto distribution of the global dating marketplace. I've said it before, and that's also related to hoflation. It's all very complicated stuff. It's economics you wouldn't understand. And so I feel this pressure now because the- your your wife's told you you have to go, <laughs> and uh, instead of talking about hoes on your holiday, so you have to like blast through it. The other the other um, x-file was just that Corrine jean-pierre tweeted something she said in investing in america means investing in all of america when i ran for president i made a promise that i would leave no part of the country behind so she was tweeting as biden so everyone realized she's been tweeting biden's tweets but no one really thought biden was tweeting and then that brings up the the obvious question well who's writing Corrine jean-pierre's tweets that are for biden because she's not writing them either because she's dumb as a post so did you see that toby
1: now, who is she? Does she work for Biden? She is she, like the press, press secretary. secretary. Yeah. She's the one
0: that replaced right. the ginger woman who Jen Pes- Pes- sackly wherever she was, Pasalki. Right. And right. She, it was that yeah. great celebration that they had a diverse black woman right, of right. lesbianness in the press secretary role.
1: Yeah. 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 You, you don't think she's writing the tweets either? They don't sound particularly Well, think about super it. She's smart. writing
0: them for Biden, but someone's going to write them for her because she's incredibly dumb. Probably. So, you know yeah. what I mean? So, there's yeah. a team's behind her. So, you go down the rabbit hole, and where, who do you end up with? Probably yeah. Klaus Schwab. Um, all right. Well, can we? Let's quickly go to everyone's favorite section, which is peak woke. So, Toby, do you want to go
1: first? Yeah. So oh, I've got sorry. a few. So there was um, there was the um, Bradley Cooper Jewface controversy, um, in which um, Bradley Cooper was criticised for wearing a particularly extreme. Jewish prosthetic nose in the upcoming Leonard Bernstein biopic uh, called Maestro, um, and uh, it, there were there were kind of two elements to it. One was, well, why haven't they cast a Jewish actor to play a Jewish composer? Um, so there was a gonna there was that, and then there was also, you know, does his nose really have to be that big? You know, um, is this Jew face? Um, and uh, and it, it seemed like a complete storm in a teacup, and. Um, his family Leonard Bernstein's family have said no we think it's fine he, he actually did have quite a big nose even if not quite yeah. as big as the prosthetic nose that um, Bradley Cooper's wearing
0: yeah and the, and the question is when are the Jews going to get a break in Hollywood Toby that's that's the big question <laughs> I mean that's a that's the controversial joke I mean I made it on telly though so it's okay although I think I said Jewish people which sounds better when you phrase it like that but we're up against the clock um yeah the family said it was fine I think it's all a bit ridiculous. Though When you see the picture, you, you do go, okay, maybe. And you also feel a bit bad just being forced to say the word Jew face, which I've now been forced to say several times on TV. Because that in itself sounds a bit bad, doesn't it? You does not feel like particularly comfortable saying it. I don't really think it is the same as blackface, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe we're entering this era now where only Oppenheimer can play Oppenheimer and Leonard Bernstein has to play Leonard mm. Bernstein. So we're, we're gonna, you're going to have to make your biopic now, Toby, while you're still alive.
1: Yeah, I wonder if they, they made a biopic of Al Jolson. Who was famously Jewish and who blacked up um, to sing the song Mammy. Um, I wonder if um, if they if they cast a non-Jewish actor to play him um, wearing blackface. I mean that that presumably would be a kind of cluster meta example of cultural appropriation in every dimension. Um, my, 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 I've got a couple more peak works. So um, uh, there's a character on Celebrity Master Chef called Cheryl Hole. Charming, um, charmingly named um, transvestite um, on Celebrity MasterChef. Um, uh, it seems like you know. Um, uh, even the BBC is jumping on the transvestite bandwagon, um, and it's upset um, a few GC feminists in my uh, my ex timeline. Um, and then um, finally, I don't know if you saw, but this um, uh, this playwright called David Gregg um uh he's had to um issue one of these hostage video like apologies um uh because um turned out he he'd liked um, a couple of gender critical feminists tweets in the past um but so, so the the hostage video he said uh, I mean it was a, just a classic of the kind he he issued this statement he, he he was the um he was heading up the I think he's the artistic director of the Lyceum Theatre Uh, in Edinburgh and he's been the theatre's artistic director since 2015 and he said in his statement I'd like to start by saying I apologise that my Twitter actions have been careless, and harmful, and I apologize if anyone has felt less than valued. I support the human rights of trans people, both in principle and in practice. I value my trans and non-binary colleagues. I value my queer, gay, and lesbian colleagues. I have programmed and supported LGBTQ work and will continue to do so, etc., etc. And it went on and on. It was just kind of one of the worst examples of the hostage video statements I think I've ever read.
0: Okay. And I had the Lib Dems will hold party conference vote on whether menstruation is just a women's issue. This was, about, this was at the conference in Bournemouth, and they're going to be asked to agree that periods also affect some trans and non-binary people. So we've already seen Ed Davies say that women clearly have penises, and one worries about some of the Lib Dem women he's meeting. But now they're saying that menstruation is for everyone. In a sort of, I'm seeing it, Toby, as a last-ditch attempt to not win any seats at the general election, even though it's right there on a plate for them. <laughs> That's the Lib Dems. And the other one came from the Foreign Office, which said, don't say hostile state. So someone from the another department had a recent submission not backed by the Foreign Office and asked for an explanation. The Foreign Office told the official, states aren't inherently hostile themselves. They just do hostile things. So you're not allowed, basically, then, and, and Ian Duncan Smith is saying it's pathetic and it's all about China. China. So you can't call China a hostile state. But luckily, Toby, you can still say China virus and Kung flu. Well, although I haven't checked that but uh, it's completely pathetic. <laughs> We're now not allowed to insult states because it's not Yeah, you can enough. imagine that
1: yeah, North Korea unleashes, you know, um, a a flock of intercontinental ballistic missiles at the UK. And as they're heading towards us and we've got minutes left to live, we someone gets chastised for calling North Korea a hostile state because that's what really matters. Yeah. 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 Do you want
0: to do any more, Toby, or, or do you want to move on because we haven't got much time? Let's move one. on. Okay, so let's just very quickly review the reviews. So we don't have much time. We've actually had some good ones, but I don't have much time. So I'm just going to go with this one. Pista Mike says, love you. I just love your podcast. I laugh out loud. I do like Nick's response to the, re- the reviews. I agree that sense of humor is now viewed as antediluvian. Good word. Please keep it up. I love you both. So that's pretty amazing, isn't it? One person says, generally very good, but Toby Young's apparent willful ignorance on the Ukraine-Russia conflict is grating. So that's not so good. He says you should read a book by Benjamin Avalo called How the West Brought War to Ukraine. But he does end by saying, I respect Toby Young a great deal, but he clearly knows nothing about Russia and even less about the Ukraine conflict. Sorry, Toby, I forgot how brutal that one was when I was (laughs) up against the clock. Uh, Someone else says it's definitely not too long, great format and broad ranging political chat and several niche sections like Birdwatch, Across the Pond, Peak Woke and Misogyny Corner, only joking. And that's a great review. We don't have time to read it all, but thank you very much. That's from Cherise555. And uh, just brilliant. Thank you for everything you do. So well-informed, interesting, funny, and free. Please keep up the good work. So there's some great ones here. Someone put generally great. And uh, that's a real funny sort of review that kind of mocks it all. Maybe I'll read it next week because we don't have that much time uh, I'll read this one because they've, they've gone with the generally great thing, which is funny because they're trolling us about when I was annoyed with that review that started generally great. This is Chris <laughs> the Man Ten. He says I do really enjoy this podcast, but almost marked it down because James revealed an Anna Karenina spoiler alert here that Anna dies at the end of Anna Karenina on Toby's other show. That was unnecessary. Nick, the current thing is good, but might benefit from a co-host, someone like Francis. So that's just a pure trolling review in all aspects. So it's kind of <laughs> a funny review. Um, anyway, so many great reviews. And uh, very, very good. Thank you for that. We don't have time for a proper scathing review the reviews section this week. But uh, thank you for everything. And if you want to support me in any way, please go to buymeacoffee.com slash Nick Dixon. And you can just buy me a metaphorical coffee to keep the current thing going, help the weekly skeptic and all these things that we do. And Toby, anything else anywhere they can find you?
1: Well, I guess I just should say that um, Will hasn't left the podcast entirely. Uh, the editor of the Daily Skeptic, Will Jones, um, he's just on holiday again this week, um, and I know all about it because um, me and Richard Eldred, the um, uh, associate editor of the Daily Skeptic, are having to fill in, and it's proving quite demanding. Um, but he'll be back, I think, next week. Um, and just to yeah. say, if you, Can I just like say, the some Daily people Skeptic, have missed Will. Yeah,
0: Sorry, some people have missed Will and they said, oh, I do miss Will. And even in my buy me a coffee section, they've said, oh, here's a coffee, Nick. I do miss Will, though. It's not my fault that Will goes on holiday, guys. He hasn't got what it takes to just never, ever have a holiday. And on that note, Toby is on holiday, but he's being rushed by his family if you found the last part of the podcast a bit rushed. direct 100% of your ire towards Toby, not me, because I'm here in my little room as always, here just living for podcasts. But anyway, please continue.
1: Yeah, sorry about that, Nick. But uh, yeah, when you're on holiday in a small cottage with your family in Norfolk in the middle of August. Um, I, it's, it's reasonable, I think, for your wife to tell you to hurry it along, particularly when lots of administrative tasks are mounting up, like planes waiting to land at Heathrow and running out of fuel. Anyway, um, sorry about that if it has sounded a little bit rushed. But I think I, looking at the clock, though, it's done about an hour and 45, so not too bad. No, almost an hour and fifty. 50. Um, but please, if you enjoyed The Daily Skeptic, please Please donate, every little counts. And I just wanted to say that we will, I think, shortly be launching um, a new our very own website, which is going to house um, the Weekly Skeptic and um, the current thing. And you'll be able to donate directly uh, to Nick and me via that website. And we'll also be promoting some live events and bringing in some, we think some other podcasters too. So we're, we're branching out and we're going to create this uh, new venture uh, together. But that's coming very soon, hopefully before the end of the month.
0: Well, and now we have to. Now you've said it, so that's a lot of pressure. But yeah, let's do that. Let's take over all of alternative media. And you can go to the current thing with me. Loads of great guests, and we just released a special episode with the the Reverend Jamie Franklin exploring Genesis, which some people have really loved. Not necessarily the non Christians. One person wrote a nasty review about it, but other people have really loved it and said it was world class, and it, they were writing their first ever review. So maybe I'll add a review to review sections to current thing. But please go to the current thing if you're not already listening. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, London Calling's gone. So all you've got now is Weekly Skeptic and Current Thing. Those are the only two podcasts you need until we launch some more. So I think that's everything. Thanks for listening. And until next week, stay skeptical.
1: Stay skeptical.